0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. This story is,
1: makes me just feel disgusting. Just the grimiest
0: individuals, the children of thunder. we 911, what is your
1: emergency? Um, I'm in Woodacre, and I thought I just heard six shots on a gun go off. My tennis mother and a
0: boyfriend, be- Okay, yeah, we have officers on the way out there. Carrie later called Taylor a, quote, parasite. Taylor pulled her neck back and he said, Spirit says you get to watch and know it's real. And he slit her throat. We prayed that God would send the right person and that person would give up their life for a greater cause. He
1: was mostly surviving on weed and meth. Call upon the powers of heaven and earth to bring forth the impeccable truth.
0: Lights out, everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Lights Out. I'm back in the studio with the boys, Austin. Yo, what up, man? What up, and Daniel? How's it going, everybody? Today, we got a crazy one for you. I mean, we always have crazy episodes here at Lights Out, but today, this story is, ah,
1: makes me just feel disgusting. Yeah. Lot By the of, end of it. A lot to unpack. Just just the grimiest individuals. The Children of Thunder. And, you know,
0: it's technically a cult, but I don't know. It's, it's. I don't even know if we should give them that, right? It's like three and a half
1: people, barely.
0: And they don't exist for very long. No. Before things go very, very wrong. And what's interesting about them is the leader glenn taylor helzer a devout mormon yeah for for most of his life and he just gets to a point where he's like the mormon church is doing it all wrong
1: yeah he's like they're not doing enough yeah i need to like double down on
0: this we need to take this to the next level yeah by by any means necessary yeah and it kind of shares that you know common cult perspective of like Jesus is coming back. Apocalypse is coming. It's like we gotta get ready for that. We gotta get as many people on board with the mission here. That is a lot of cults. That's yeah, like it always goes to that. Them. Yeah,
1: the second coming of Christ. Only the most devout people will be saved, and we need to prepare by any means necessary. Yeah, and those means are typically
0: brutal and awful, as is the case with this particular story. So. Buckle up for this one. This is a wild one, and not a very well-known one. I feel like I feel like a lot of people haven't heard of the Children of Thunder or the Helzer Brothers.
1: Yeah, this was new to me when you uh, you dropped it on the list. I've never heard of it before.
0: So, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Raycon, Care of, and Rocket Money. Thanks to them for supporting our work here at Lights Out. But let's go ahead and just dive into things here and begin by talking about the early years of the Helzer brothers. So Mr. Glenn Taylor Helzer was born in Lansing, Michigan on July 26, 1970. He was raised in a middle-class family of devout Mormons. His parents were Jerry Helzer, who was an insurance salesman, and his wife, Karma, a physical therapist. Glenn usually went by his middle name, Taylor, and that's how we'll be referring to him throughout this episode is Taylor. He was the oldest of three his siblings were heather and justin who was two years younger than him his family moved around quite a bit growing up from michigan to georgia to texas and eventually to contra costa county in northern california growing up taylor was known for his charisma as many cult leaders are known for he had an easy time making friends everyone in his community liked him and even the local mormon bishop thought that taylor had a bright future ahead of him which it makes a lot of sense for me for you know the mormon bishop to say that because he's like this guy's going to convert a lot of people
1: yeah he's he's handsome he's charismatic he's uh he's busy keeps himself busy you know
0: seems like a very outgoing individual as well yeah likes you know likes people around him likes attention on him and he was described by others as kind respectful and full of excitement his cousin charney hoffman later said he was like my mentor a lot of people wanted to be like him so that's that's like the main thing with taylor is that everybody in his life seemed to want to follow him from an early age they just were drawn to him it seemed like he was wise beyond his years and he was very dedicated to his mission as a mormon
1: yeah and bottom line he was cool he was that exactly. like cool
0: dude yeah on the other hand his brother grew up very differently. He was constantly in Taylor's shadow, he was unpopular and quiet, and he mostly kept to himself. Taylor often told him, quote, I'm number one, you're number two, and that's pretty much how it went for most of their lives. For a while, Taylor lived with his maternal grandfather, Doyle Sorensen, who was from Salt Lake City. His grandfather was very, very religious, and he told Taylor that he often saw Jesus in his garden, and he would even have conversations with him. By the time Taylor was fourteen, he also claimed to start hearing voices in his head and he didn't see this as a problem because he was raised in a culture where divine revelation was something that could happen to anyone you know it's if you hear voices and and this this goes for many religions I know even in the religion I grew up in you know they would our pastors would teach us like if you hear a voice in your head, you know it could either be God or it could be the devil and you're you know.
1: your conscience yeah in the the past few decades we've moved away from this uh for the most part you know it's more like you hear voices in your head let's get you checked out because this might be schizophrenia something along those lines but i mean back then we didn't know much i mean there's really no excuse for here because it's this is a more recent case but i don't know i feel like today we would have a better understanding of that and maybe some red flags would be raised but yeah historically if you're hearing voices yeah you kind of just come to the conclusion that now this might be God this might be the devil who knows Mm -hmm.
0: it was around this time that he also began having delusions of grandeur throughout his childhood he was always told that he was special and now that he began hearing voices he thought he must have had a direct line to God just like his grandfather back at home with his parents he soon became the man of the household while his father sat back Taylor was always the golden child He was always in charge. And in his mother's eyes, he could do no wrong. He eventually graduated from Ignacio Valley High School in California, and he actually served in the National Guard, but only for a short amount of time. Coming from an isolated Mormon background, he was shocked to see a lot of the other men drinking, smoking, and having sex outside of marriage. And according to the Mormon church and the writings of Joseph Smith, these are considered sins. So Taylor tried to convince the other guys to give up their habits and turn to God. He actually was able to convert a few of the young men but most of them just ignored him as many mormons do around the time you turned 19 years old he went and served uh, as a missionary went on his mission and he was assigned to go to brazil for two years missionary work is a rite of passage in the mormon church and while he was in brazil he used his charisma to spread the teachings of the mormon church he had bonded with his missionary partner jonathan whom he had to spend every single day with Jonathan noticed that Taylor would stay up late into the night diving into the Book of Mormon and the teachings of Joseph Smith. Some of the local Brazilians began idolizing Taylor. He already thought he was quote-unquote special and now his new followers inflated his ego even more and his beliefs became more radical as time went on. And what it sounds like from those that, you know, heard more about his time in Brazil was that he was just like absolutely killing it down there. Like he was converting people left and right and
1: he was really kind of drawing lots and lots of people to him yeah he almost started his own little cult down there even though he was preaching you know the teachings of the mormon church yeah people were flocking to him specifically not necessarily the teachings just because of who he was and how he acted i think this was a pivotal
0: point in his life because i think you realized kind of the power that he had You know he'd been told that he was special and you know everybody was pumping him up his whole childhood but now he's out on his own kind of proving his abilities uh to the world and i think he realized like wow i am actually able to draw people into me and and convince them in believing what i believe yeah
1: and i have a direct line to god
0: yeah and i'm connected shortly after he began believing that the apocalypse was near and he had strange visions inspired by mormon teachings he envisioned a dystopian world where technology failed and warrior prophets led the few remaining survivors and this is kind of when he started taking you know the teachings of Joseph Smith uh the Book of Mormon and is like eh, I'm gonna kind of slightly alter these uh for my own you know kind of towards these visions that I'm having and kind of craft my own version uh, of Mormonism I guess when Taylor got back from Brazil he thought that the Mormon church wasn't headed in the right direction and really wasn't truly prepared for the apocalypse. But he kept most of these thoughts and ideologies to himself, and he tried to act like not much had changed during his time abroad. In 1993, he married a woman named Anne, whom he had gone to high school with, but he made sure that she converted to Mormonism first. He wouldn't even take her on a date until she was baptized. Through Anne's uncle, Taylor later became a stockbroker and financial advisor with the Morgan Stanley Dean Witter Company, at one point, he had a hundred and fifty clients, so he was doing very, very well. I mean, I can definitely see him being a stockbroker, financial advisor, and doing yeah,
1: well, super successful. I mean, you're essentially kind of a salesman-esque at that point. So if you're charismatic and handsome, you know,
0: you could kill it. Absolutely. Co-workers described him as quote a good, clean Mormon kid. Over the years, he ended up having two daughters with Anne, and throughout their marriage, Taylor's spiritual convictions grew stronger and stronger, and over time, he started slowly distancing himself from the Mormon church. Meanwhile, his brother Justin did missionary work in Texas and later joined the National Guard as well. So there you go. He's literally falling in his brother's footsteps, mm-hmm. which there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of brothers do that. But I think for him, it was a he was just he felt that this is what he had to do. There was no other option outside of following
1: what his brother wanted. Yeah. Cause I followed a lot of my brother's stuff because he's five years older than me. So like getting into drums, that was my brother at first, and stuff like that, but at some point, paths diverge. You're different Uh, people at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's like once you start getting your own personality and your own passions and stuff. it's So that's one thing to note definitely here is that I don't think those they ever kind of left each other. Justin was always latched on.
0: Right, and it doesn't help that Justin was watching taylor have all this success too right i think when an older brother is successful and doing maybe the things that you want to do and they're kind of living the life that you want it's much easier for that younger brother to kind of copy every move right definitely because they're like oh here's the formula for how i get that i'm going to do everything that taylor did and i'll end up you know being this this great leader and have a family and all these different things Justin also started studying for an Associate of Arts degree at Diablo Valley College, and he later became a cable installer in Texas. The Helzer brothers stayed in touch throughout the years, and when Justin saw that his older brother was changing, so did he. Justin always struggled with a sense of identity since he was young, and you know, he's just following in his brother's footsteps and not really creating his own path at this point. One of the first things he noticed was that Taylor no longer thought that drinking and smoking were sins. So he was like all right well if taylor's doing it then i'll start doing it <laughs> yeah. and this is a big no-no uh, when it comes to mormonism definitely not something you want to do soon taylor started having marital problems and he was going out and drinking a lot more he grew out his hair and also allegedly began having affairs with women according to his wife he became addicted to pornography after years of abstaining from it and this caused a lot of problems in their marriage His wife Ann thought that Taylor was also a "quote unquote" television junkie who had lived a sheltered life, and she also said he wanted to expand his life outside the church. He began feeling the confines of his religion and wanted to try the normal life. By normal life, she meant substance abuse and sex outside of marriage, which just isn't totally surprising. I mean, when you grow up, I mean, I can kind of relate to that personally from being, you know, kind of sheltered and you know following a certain set of rules for a long, long time, and then. You leave that, you do have the sense of freedom of like, oh, I'm, you know, if I don't believe that I'm sinning now, then I can know, do whatever I can I do whatever I want. Yeah. You definitely start diving into things that you previously were like, I absolutely can't ever do that. Whether it's you know, drinking or porn, I guess, or <laughs> you know, whatever it may be. You know, it's like, I, I think we're all, as human beings, we want what we can't have, right? right? And so when you that wall's brought down, you're like, oh, let me just see what this is about.
1: But it can be, be dangerous for sure, because oh, yeah, you can go overboard with it. Yeah, it's one of those cases you've been suppressed your whole life, and then once you once the cage is open, you, you kind of become a wild animal. So that's kind of the case here. And it's also, you know, early 20s, where a lot of people are experimenting with right, things. Right, so it's just this nor- kind of normal behavior for this,
0: this yeah. age. But eventually, all this led to Taylor completely abandoning His wife and two children, which this is unbelievable. Yeah. They separated in June 1996, and Taylor just went off the rails at this point. He just started going out clubbing, raving. He was abusing marijuana, cocaine, ecstasy on a nightly basis. And he began diving into more self-help concepts. So he's still like it's interesting that he pivots from, you know, this very, you know, kind of strict regimen, this religion, and then he's kind of still looking for guidance in life, right?
1: Yeah, isn't that kind of what happens? I don't know, we both grew up very religious, and there is, after you kind of leave that structure, it, you do kind of have a little bit of a void that you want to fill, so you just have to find, what well, what is that? What healthy thing, hopefully healthy thing, can I fill that void with? But I think some people fill it with unhealthy things.
0: Right, those vices really... Coming strong, yeah, you know? and but then at the same time, I don't think the the questions that you had before that you maybe believed were answered those come back, right? Right. Like, yeah. what's the point of this? What happens when you die? Yep. And as a human, you're just like, I need to know the answers to this, so I'm going to keep searching for them. At least that's for me. I'm not all people go that way, but for me, I was like, I still want to know. If it's not this, then what is it? Right. Right. Yeah. And so I really went into like learning about a lot of different religions and spiritual practices. And, you know, I got really, really into Alan Watts, like was a huge help to me. And really, really kind of learned a lot about myself through a lot of his lectures and uh, listening to to that over the years. Nice, And also just like motivational videos on YouTube. Like I, was, I would go to work and I, I worked in a, kind of like a call center, help desk type environment. And I would just like listen to, motivational videos all day long, like you know, just be a bunch of different people, whether Tony Robbins to um, you know, Jim Carrey I think has a lot of interesting things to say. Yeah. Just about different ways of living your life and self empowerment type stuff. And that really, really helped me a lot.
1: Nice. Yeah, there's a great podcast I always listen to called Secular Buddhism and it kinda helps you. It's like it doesn't really matter what your religion is. You can just listen to that and apply apply the concepts of Buddhism to whatever religion that you're already a part of or just what wherever you are in your life which i love that concept where it's like no one's trying to convert you into this no one's trying to dump the doctor doctrines and dogmas and get you all confused and hyped up and and uh militant about your religion it's more just like hey here's how to apply these concepts to your everyday life so i appreciate that
0: yeah that's great I do think there is another possibility here when you do you know in Taylor's experience you know growing up in as a Mormon and being very devout and going on a mission and all these things when you do kind of stray away from that, I think you can go more the route that we go where it's just like I'm cool with that, just not for me, I want to explore other ideas, but I think there's also a possibility that you can go. Down a much more extreme path, yeah. From that,
1: you go like the rebellious, violent route, right? Yeah. The angry route, or the controlling route, yeah. Because Taylor was really angry
0: with the Mormon Church, like, and he ultimately want wants to bring this down, yeah. Like he's like, they're all, you know, all the people at the top, they're all hypocrites. They're not doing things right, you know. They're not taking this as seriously as they should. So I'm gonna be the one to to Lead, you know, sort of this new sect of Mormonism into the future. That's ultimately going to save save everybody, right? Yeah,
1: and that's good to point out because it's not like he he's not just trying to leave the church. In the back of his mind, he's like, how do I take over the church? Yes, it's a takeover. Yeah. So the Houser brothers, you know, they're still curious with their spirituality and the meaning of life. So they joined this self help program called Harmony, and they had this impact training that they did and it was actually introduced to them by their mother karma which is interesting to think about because both their parents are super devout mormons as well so they're, they they kind of have this little side self-help spirituality going on uh, tangential to the to the church so she ended up encouraging her whole family to check it out the leaders of this self-help program quickly indoctrinated taylor and justin into the community the goal was essentially to raise self-awareness the only important thing was understanding yourself on a deeper level and being true to yourself. And according to this training, there is no right or wrong. And this is very where, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. When you get into amoral concepts, philosophies, and stuff, I mean, I know like Anton LaVey was into there is no such thing as right and wrong. Everything is amoral. It's, I like it from an objective standpoint but I do not like it in the minds of dangerous people. Right, right. right. So the members of this self-help group, they were often encouraged to reveal deeply personal information to other members of the group, and the leaders would mock them over personal embarrassments. So if the leaders thought that a woman was overweight, they would make them wear a cow costume and a bell around their neck. If a woman revealed that they were sexually abused, the leaders would then laugh at them and call them a, quote, slut if anyone tried to protest against these really aggressive uh, uh, programs, they would just threaten to kick them out. And I guess these members were just so addicted to this and they thought that it was working so well that even just threatening to kick you out of the group, they were like, please don't, I'll just go along with this. So It's almost a cult in its own own right. Exactly, exactly. And they claim that the concept of this program was to make the members hate themselves until they loved themselves. So what a strange manipulative we'll reverse tactic. psychology here. Yeah. Each member would spend hundreds of dollars to stay in the group, and seeing that this group was so dedicated and passionate, obviously on the sidelines, Taylor's like, "Hey, one day I can bend people to my will." And so this is kind of you see the seeds being planted here. Uh, from brazil to this harmony impact training kind of puts see. two and two
0: together he's like oh i'll take what this you know harmony impact training's doing because it seems to be working really well and i'll infuse that into my own ideas exactly yep as a podcaster i am a huge stickler for good audio and over the years i've had a lot of experience with different audio brands headphones earbuds you name it i've probably tried every single brand out there on the market But one brand that I have always raved about and love personally is Raycon. Now, if you haven't tried Raycon wireless earbuds or their headphones or their speakers, they are giving you the quality of audio that you're looking for and that you often find and sometimes you don't find in the more expensive brands out there at a fraction of the cost. One of my favorite products from them is the Everyday Earbuds from Raycon. I love these earbuds because they have passive noise cancellation, they have 32 hours of battery, which is awesome, especially for traveling or commuting, and they have surround sound feature as well. My favorite thing though about these earbuds is the audio quality is really next level for the price point. The bass is amazing, the mids are great. No matter what type of music that you listen to, these just sound absolutely amazing. And, you know, if you're a podcast listener, Having a great pair of headphones is essential, especially for our show. What's awesome about Raycon is that they don't outsource the design and development of their earbuds. Their small but mighty team of design audio engineers cut their teeth at brands like Bose and Peloton. Plus, you can get a pair and a spare and still pay less than you would with some of those other more big-name tech brands out there, which is awesome. Raycon knows that in this economy, every purchase needs to be perfect. They offer buy-now-pay-later options, pay as low as $18 at checkout. And they're also now offering two years of product protection insurance for just a few bucks. They offer free domestic shipping or can ship internationally for a flat fee. They have an easy and free return guarantee, and they have over 50,000 five-star reviews. These are just so comfortable. I, I wear these when I fall asleep at night. Oftentimes, they're still in my ears when I wake up, and best of all, my ears are not aching in the morning. I love my Raycon wireless earbuds, and I know you will too. Go pick up a pair. By clicking the link in the description box, or go to buyraycon.com/lightsout15 to get 15% off your Raycon purchase. Again, go get your pair. Click the link in the description box, or go to buyraycon.com/lightsout15 for 15% off your Raycon purchase.
1: So, meanwhile, in 1998, Taylor met a waitress named Carrie Mendoza at a local restaurant. He thought she was pretty, and she thought he was handsome. And as they talk, she reveals a lot about herself and admitted she had a tough childhood and had just gotten out of an abusive relationship. So what does any good manipulator do? Boom. He starts thinking, how can I take advantage of her vulnerabilities? So he leaves his business card and credit card on the table, plus a note telling Carrie to, you know, go buy something nice for yourself. Carrie ended up not using the credit card because she was, I don't know, people just random strangers giving you credit cards. That's that's a whack move, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that creeped me out. Yeah. But she did end up calling him the next day and they started dating and eventually moved in together. Justin, the brother, also moved in with them and they would have a few roommates moving in and out at any given time at this house that they moved into. Carrie loved living with her new boyfriend Taylor would shower with her affection, tell her how pretty she was, you know, the classic love bombing. Around the same time, he left his job as a stockbroker after having a mental breakdown. He wouldn't shower for days and claimed he often spoke with God, and his behavior kept getting more and more strange. He was actually later diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which ended up putting him on disability. Some thought that he might've been faking this, collect money from the government and he did later admit that he was faking it but one of his psychiatrists later said that this diagnosis was absolutely real and the only reason taylor claimed that it was fake was because he was embarrassed about the diagnosis weakness in his mind right exactly and it's like how am i gonna lead a cult if people know that i have a mental illness right so he's like nah i was just faking it right yeah so Yeah. yeah Soon, he was excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints over his drug abuse. If you think about it, his drug abuse probably contributed to a lot of this mental illness. And by now, he thought he was a prophet delivered by God, and he would be responsible for initiating the second coming of Jesus. So, initiating the second, mm-hmm. he's going to bring it on. Soon, he urged Carrie to go through the Harmony Impact program herself. She later claimed that the experience was overall positive, she was interested in taylor's ideas but she wasn't fully indoctrinated yet back at the rental house taylor carrie and justin lived with a few other roommates to save money and taylor made all the rules justin and carrie worked full time just to support him because he wasn't working to make even more money taylor then convinced carrie to send nude pictures of herself to playboy to get a shot at becoming a model before she did she this is strange she borrowed money from taylor's dad so she could afford breast augmentation surgery Carrie was later contacted by playboy for a professional photo shoot so it worked out in the meantime taylor also began selling ecstasy at nightclubs for some extra cash but really none of taylor's money ever went towards his actual living situation he wanted to just use it as startup money for a couple's counseling business so you can kind of see these weird parallels between okay we're talking about religion self-help couples counseling so he's he's in this like i think he's just wants to control people because he these are very emotional spots right so the problem was he needed even more money so he convinced carrie to start stripping at the gold club in san francisco and while working here she would make up to about a grand a night He then wanted Carrie to convince the other strippers to join an escort service he would call the Feline Club. Then he and Carrie would run it. Another idea that Taylor had was that Carrie would do private dance sessions with men and then end up having sex with them and charging them for money. But as we'll see going forward, Taylor has a lot of plans and not many or basically none of his plans ever really worked out. Instead, Carrie did end up actually having sex with another man, and Taylor was furious, but not because she cheated on him. He was pissed because she didn't charge the man for it. So... He's just straight-up sex trafficking at this point. Exactly. Things in the rental house kept getting even stranger. Everyone except Justin, at any given time, was basically always high on weed, ecstasy, meth, GHB, and or cannabine. One night... Taylor made Justin watch him and Carrie have sex. Very strange to invite your brother into the bedroom. Uh, I don't even want to unpack that one. On the other hand, Justin never dated. He was quiet and awkward, always living as just this pawn in Taylor's world, essentially. Supposedly, people thought of Justin as a handsome, nice guy, but he was very strange and odd. One of their other roommates had dated a woman named Sarah. And one evening, Sarah had actually come down to the kitchen to get a glass of water. She witnessed Justin on his hands and knees eating food off of a plate on the floor. Just like acting like a wild animal. That's bizarre, man. Yeah. I'm assuming there's uh, some drugs at play here. I would assume so too. And then when Sarah later broke up with her boyfriend, Justin tried to ask her out, but she said she only thought of him as a friend. Obviously, you know, he didn't take this well. And not long after, he approached Sarah one day and told her he wanted to show her his new piercing. He then dropped his pants and underwear in front of her. There was no piercing. He just wanted to flash her. So, Jesus.
0: Yeah, his hands- things are out of control.
1: He's handsome and nice, they say, but clearly he's a creep. There are, both of them are just absolute creeps. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile... Amidst
0: all of the partying and sex trafficking that Taylor's doing, he's also concocting big plans for the organization, and he named it Transform America. The idea was heavily inspired by that self-help organization, Harmony Impact Training, which I looked very far and wide to try to find any evidence of this thing. It's been scrubbed. I'm like, it's gone. Yeah,
1: it's very hard to find anything about it, probably for good reason. Yeah, I would assume manipulation Mm -hmm. self-help.
0: the core structure of his organization was that there was no such thing as right or wrong. The concept of good and evil was a, quote, primitive belief system. That's no good. His goal is to establish themselves in a small town, and he wanted to add orgies and drugs to it. The town would then give Taylor 1% of their tax revenue because they loved him so much. I mean, you can just see the, the delusions are just...
1: And I'm assuming, I don't know, I I... I'm totally assuming that he's high, thinking of these stupid yeah, plans. I can, I can definitely see that.
0: So then he'd use that money to establish Transform America in another town, and then he'd just keep on spreading it around. And this was all to prepare the world, get this, for the second coming of Christ, which is just like, what? What? Don't How get it. do you even know the story of the second, like, the rapture and
1: the the. Everything that falls, I'm just like, this makes no sense whatsoever. How is you setting up shop across the world, like preparing anybody for the second coming of Christ? I don't get it. I don't think that's what Christ would want you to do. (laughs) Yeah. I hate to break
0: it to you. But of course, he needed more money. He needed a million dollars in order to fund this project of his. So Carrie needed to keep on stripping. And then he planned on setting up a meth lab in the garage. Here we go. God. This is when Carrie and the rest became worried. I mean, whenever a meth lab gets set up, nothing good ever falls. Like, this is just bad, bad news. A meth lab was not only a health concern, but they worried about it attracting the police's attention. Taylor's meth lab plans were soon
1: shut down by the others in the house. They're like, no, you cannot be Walter White
0: here. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad.
1: I mean, clearly they were letting some strange, odd behavior go on in this house, but I'm glad that they drew the line at a meth lab. Yeah. God. So
0: then Taylor, of course, he's like, all right, we're not going to do the meth lab. Here's the next plan. He wanted to take Carrie to Mexico so they could lure underage girls into a sex ring. He would teach them how to have sex and then he would disguise them as sandwich delivery girls and send them to seduce some of his old stockbroker acquaintances. That is so vile and evil. What on earth? Taylor would then secretly videotape them and then blackmail them with a $50 million lawsuit. And this was how Taylor planned on funding his new ideas. But of course, this plan has no basis in reality or any sense
1: of ever coming to fruition. I mean, it's no. just absolutely insane. I think maybe his confidence, his ego got huge because he's like, oh, I can kind of see that I'm manipulating right. Carrie into all this and I can traffic her. So why not just traffic a bunch of people? Right. hmm
0: Taylor and Carrie did eventually go down to Mexico. They actually uh, popped down to Tijuana and they were there to pick up some street Rohypnol, which Rohypnol is a benzo used to treat severe insomnia and assist with anesthesia. It's also, I believe the date rape drug, Rufi. So it's very, it's very powerful. When Taylor began sketching up the structure of the cult or what he called his self-help program, he made it similar to the Mormon church hierarchy. At the top was the president and his two counselors obviously taylor would be the president and justin and carrie would be the counselors but carrie soon began to pull away from taylor she had been against the meth lab and now she had stopped stripping to make him money so taylor began pushing her out of his big plans carrie later called taylor a quote parasite which i think is a a nice way to put it yeah (laughs) meanwhile her modeling career was about to take off as playboy contacted her to come to la for another photo shoot And she began to focus more on her career and less
1: on Taylor and his half-baked ideas. So Taylor, he realized Carrie's distancing herself. He needs to find someone else who's loyal. So he quickly found a replacement for his second counselor position. Her name was Dawn Godman. And he found her out in Walnut Creek, just a few miles from him. Dawn had grown up in the Sierra and Nevada mountains, far from any city. She was a lonely kid growing up. Her mom had put most of her time and attention into Dawn's dad, who was chronically ill. She spent much of her childhood alone. She would go and wander through the woods surrounding her home. Very lonely upbringing. And by the time she was 17, though, she got married. A year later, she ended up giving birth to a son. But not long after that marriage failed, she got a divorce and she started studying to become a nurse She then got a job at a nursing home, but she began abusing drugs in her spare time to deal with stress. Her drug abuse consumed her life, she ended up losing her job, her ex-husband got full custody of their son, she also lost her home, and she was even living in her car for a while. One night, she tried to overdose and end her life, and as she was in recovery, she was checked into a mental health facility for three days. And during this recovery, she was given a copy of the Book of Mormon. She dove into it and joined a local LDS church. And here she found, you know, a nice sense of community. She had grown up so isolated. She had gone through a lot when she was pretty young. And so she was, it was probably must be nice to see this sober community of people who are very accepting. And the people around her seemed to genuinely care about her. By 1998, she was an official member of the church, and she had gotten her life together enough to where she could actually see her son on the weekends. But just as she's getting her life together, she ends up meeting Taylor and Justin Helzer. They met at a singles function organized by the Mormon church, and the theme was a murder mystery dinner party. I know that the Mormon church, they set up functions here and there just for people to come hang out, social events and whatnot. And obviously a lot of these in the Mormon church, I know people get married very young and it's marriage is a big emphasis in the church, especially at a young age. So knowing that Taylor and Justin knew this, they're probably going into these functions being like, let me find a vulnerable single person. Absolutely. This was targeted. Yeah. They knew what they were
0: doing. Well, and the other interesting thing too, that um, was said about Taylor after, you know, Carrie started like dissing herself and kind of like going off and doing her own thing was that Taylor did not want to kind of like bring other pretty girls, model like girls into his group because he realized he's like, oh, you know, they can go off and model. They can, you know, they may stray more easily from the group as opposed to finding somebody who's maybe, you know, in his eyes, not as pretty or, you know, you know, doesn't have as much going on in their life and i really think that's why he went to the singles event and ultimately targeted don
1: for sure and obviously by now the helzer brothers stuck out like a sore thumb they had long hair they wore all black clothing which if you've ever seen a group of mormons they, they did don't not wear all like black yeah. yeah not at all so while the other mormons were dressed in what don later said suburban starch shirts and chinos and that's that's exactly how uh, you, you got the literal brothers from hell showing up. <laughs> yeah, like. right. God. So Dawn, she kind of takes interest to them. Like, ooh, they are they look unique. They don't look like all the other guys. Let so, me shoot my shot here. Yeah. So she goes and introduces herself to the Helzer brothers. And Taylor used his charm to quickly become friends with her, as he always did with everyone who he came across. They talked about philosophy and, quote, living one's life in alignment with God yeah, I guarantee you, he made sure to drop that line to me. It's like, oh, I know this is a Mormon event, so I'm going to sell this like religion thing that I'm also in, still in line. Yeah, with, even though he's totally, absolutely full of it. not. Yeah. yeah, and not long after that, Taylor eventually wore her down. He used her vulnerabilities against her, like he always did, and he sold her on this idea of transform America. She eventually believed that Taylor Helzer and Jesus Christ were actually brothers. I don't know how you would think that, but that is supposedly she was convinced that maybe spiritual brothers. Yeah, I'm as like, far as biological brothers, that makes zero sense. But Taylor would be alive for thousands of years. Yeah, so I guess maybe he convinced her of that. But yeah, if he's some form of deity or something, I don't know. In early 2000, Taylor made Dawn also go through Harmony Impact training. Then he officially invited her to be. The second counselor for his program. Taylor, Justin, and Don ended up setting up these secret private meetings in the rental house, and they aggressively started to exclude Carrie. It wasn't long before Carrie eventually just said, hey, I'm out. She packed her bags, headed to Southern California. She took on the stage name Carissa Fair and later became September's Playboy Playmate of the Month. You know what? Good for her. Imagine if she had stayed. Yeah, and got wrapped up into what a mess they're about to get into. I'm glad she got out of there. Meanwhile, Taylor indoctrinated Dawn into his radical ideologies. He got her to believe that anything and everything was acceptable as long as it served the goal of creating an earthly paradise, which we'll see the contradictions of this statement a bit later. Transform America was basically all that mattered now. In the new year,
0: Taylor began convincing Dawn to dress in see-through mesh tops. He convinced her that his own sexual pleasure was a way to achieve paradise on Earth. Justin had New Year's resolutions for himself too. In his journal, he planned on becoming a quote, a driver, a sexual lover, and a druid. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> what the fuck? I mean, I get the druid comes from Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. The, it's a know,
1: class, yep. You know, role-playing game but is I, I didn't understand is he talking about he wants to be a druid in D? are they playing D? do they have a they the, played as kids so maybe they're still playing D&D. that's crazy I mean, they have like the same campaign they've been running for like 15 years or something but I ah mean, uh, strange also what a weird goal of i want to become a
0: driver yeah a driver a sexual lover and a druid okay He's kind of living in fantasy world at this point. Yeah. So one day Taylor saw that Don was completely loyal to his cause and he told her they should go for a drive while in the car. Taylor told her that he had recently heard the voice of the spirits in his head. They told him it was finally time to reveal the big plan to her. He drove her over to the LDS temple in Oakland. He said they were on a sacred mission and he believed that if they were on LDS property, the angels would protect them. He didn't want Satan listening in to their conversation. He told her everything there was to know about his plans for Transform America, and he told her that he was a prophet sent by God. The end of the world was approaching fast, and they needed to act now. He explained that they would possibly need to kidnap people and kill them in order for this plan to work. There were sacrifices that had to be made in order to prepare for the second coming. By that point, Don was fully committed to Taylor, He asked her if she'd be willing to kill in God's name, and she told him she'd quote, consider it a blessing. She later said, Taylor made you feel like you're the most important person in the world. The manipulation coming from Taylor is on a whole nother level. Here's this, you know, wise, good looking man that is totally interested in Dawn who's never had any sort of relationship like this before. And so she's just kind of. I think she's really kind of fallen head over heels in love with this guy and just loves the attention that he's giving her and he's just taking advantage of her
1: and i bet he's playing into the knowing that he's going to this mormon singles event right you know he's playing into this like hey i used to be like you i was a devout mormon but let me bring you in on this even more cooler deeper more important mission yeah they're all lame over there they're not doing the real
0: work out yeah, here it's half-assed over there but yeah I'm doing the real work yeah and you get to spend all your time with me you know right and like, for her that's just like ah oh, this is amazing yeah it's like kind of what I've always dreamed of in, in a way you know exactly and he's just yeah mind controlling her at this point at this point Taylor had convinced Don and Justin that violence was acceptable Again, there's no right or wrong and it was very necessary in order to achieve their goals But first, Taylor needed a new place to build, transform America. So he sent Justin down to Concord, California, where he found a three-bedroom rental house on Saddlewood Court. It was a quiet neighborhood where everyone kept to themselves. The landlord told Justin that he would be the only one allowed to live there, and he agreed. When the landlord asked why he wanted three bedrooms, Justin said he would use one as a gym and the other for meditation. But of course, he was lying as Taylor and Don moved right in after signing the lease. Around the same time, Taylor thought it was a good idea if they started using secret codenames. For whatever reason, Taylor's codename would be Jordan, Justin would be Jason, and Don would be Sky. The brothers picked the names Jordan and Jason because they were similar to John and James. The two apostles Jesus once called, quote, Sons of Thunder, hence where they get the name Children of Thunder. And this Sons of Thunder is only mentioned once in the Bible, And there's not really a whole lot. I mean, it's up to interpretation as to why Jesus named them this. You know, I did a little research on this, and a lot of people uh, believe that is because of just the thunderous personalities that James and John, you know, they were kind of, you know, they were, I think they were Jesus's like best friends too. And, you know, they're out there, disciples of Jesus, you know, watching Jesus do miracles, taking part in all of it. And, you know whenever they'd have like an adverse reaction to Jesus or something like this these guys would be like gung-ho be like how could you do that <laughs> you know and and so they just kind of were his uh his boys you know yeah. they were like right-hand thick men thick as thieves absolutely so that's where the sons of thunder comes from
1: and it also sounds pretty cool it too. does
0: sons of thunder and also the voice of god in the bible uh, is often compared to the sound of thunder right It's kind of that connection there. In this economy, we're all trying to find better ways to manage our finances, especially those pesky subscriptions that we all seem to have, about 100 of them. I mean, I can't even tell you how many subscriptions I have. I probably had like 50 going on, no joke, 50 different subscriptions between games to streaming to, I mean, it seems like every service online you use now has some sort of subscription or products that you're subscribed to. And it can be very, very easy to lose track of what you're actually paying for, especially when you stop using some of those services. So Rocket Money came along sponsored sponsor the show probably about a year ago and I started using Rocket Money. And it is now my go-to app almost every single day because I just love the way that it lays out all of your finances, your expenses, you connect your bank accounts, your credit cards, basically any sort of account that you have and it sorts everything out for you, shows you all the subscriptions that you're paying for, but best of all, with a tap of a button, they will go and cancel that subscription for you and even try to get you money retroactively from the time you stopped using that service, which is absolutely amazing. So in short, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and it even helps lower your bills. I really love the bill feature that they have because all you have to do is take a picture of your bill and send it to Rocket Money, and then they will go and try to negotiate your bill and get you a lower rate so like i did this with my xfinity internet and i think they're able to knock off like 20 bucks a month off of my bill and it was super easy to just use my phone take a picture send it off the rocket money and they did the rest i literally didn't do anything it also monitors your credit which i absolutely love and i just am looking for simplicity in my life i'm looking for things that make my life easier and rocket money has done that for me financially and i know it can do it for you as well Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with $500 million in canceled subscriptions. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com/lightsout. Let them know that we sent you over at rocketmoney.com/lightsout. But still, Taylor had a big problem. He needed more money to get this self-help organization off the ground. So instead of like getting a job or continuing work as a financial advisor or doing anything legal, he's like, how about we kidnap some people? God. And he's like, oh, I've got a list of people I could kidnap who also have money uh, that I had worked with as a stockbroker or financial advisor. And the plan was to, after they kidnapped them, they would then extort them and transfer their funds into an intermediary bank account. And from there, they would transfer it to Taylor's bank account. And they thought that, oh, if we just move it to one account, then to my
1: account. We'll be good. Nobody will ever know. So, so stupid. That is so stupid. All their plans are just
0: which is very surprising to me considering he worked in the financial industry. Right. How the hell did he not know that that was going to be red flags all over the
1: place? I know, has like has the drug use just rotted I mean, his brain or something or like I also don't understand if he, you know, he claimed oh I had 150 clients at the while I was a stockbroker. Where did all that money go? Yeah. Did you burn it on ecstasy and cocaine at clubbing every night? Like, is that what happened to that? Because that's, I mean, this guy clearly isn't even good with his own money, which is kind of ironic, right? Yeah. Scary when you're managing other people's money. Right. So the plan was once the money
0: had been transferred to his bank account, they would just kill all the kidnapped victims. Great plan. Solid. So awful. They'd also kill the person who opened the intermediary account because that's not going to raise any red flags either. But the first problem they ran into was finding someone who would open the account in their own name and then trust the Children of Thunder enough to give Taylor all the money in the end. Like, how do you even
1: go about doing this? Right. Cause they could just deposit the money and then be like, peace out. It's mine now. Right. So they're like, I mean, obviously, Taylor's getting his gears going for he's like okay gotta find somebody else now gotta turn on the charm again gotta lure someone else and become loyal which is an easy task for him
0: yeah you know so he believes so he what he does he goes to a club you know he's selling drugs to probably just get by and so he starts selling some ecstasy one night at the club and he runs into a young woman named selena bishop selena's father was a famous blues guitarist elvin bishop actually wrote a hit song. Quote: "Fooled around and fell in love after meeting Selena's mother, Jennifer Villarín, who went by Jenny. A few years later, Jenny gave birth to Selena in 1977, and by 1980, Jenny and Elvin separated. Selena mostly lived with her mom, and they moved around a lot, but she still kept in contact with her father. When Selena was in school, they mostly lived in Marin County, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. To make ends meet, Jenny worked as a housekeeper, a nanny, and also ran her own jewelry business on the side." This is how she met a man named Jim Gamble, and they started a relationship. When Selena was a teenager, she worked as a waitress at the Two Birds Cafe. In her teen years, she grew an interest in partying and going to raves, and this is how she ends up at the club that night uh, in April 2000. She went to an underground nightclub and went searching for some ecstasy, and who did she run into? Mr. Taylor Helzer. But, of course, he's not going by Taylor. He's going by the name Jordan. And Taylor turned on his charm as always, you know, getting six foot five, he's got long dark hair, a nice smile, and he knew how to use his looks and charisma. And Selena fell right into his trap. You know, after this encounter they had, you know, they started going out on expensive dates. But he would never tell her where he got the money from. Selena assumed it was from dealing drugs and Taylor ended up love bombing Selena as well. And soon enough, she was obsessed with him. But the relationship would only go so far Taylor never wanted to meet any of Selena's friends or family. Even when she tried to send them a picture, he refused. He said he was connected to a drug ring with dangerous people, so he had to keep his identity a secret. Taylor then convinced Selena to find a new place to live where she could live alone, and she did this without questioning him whatsoever. She ended up finding a first floor of a duplex to live in in Woodacre, California, which is about an hour outside of Concord, California. And then she just worked at the Two Bird Cafe, which was just down the road in San Geronimo. One day, Selena's mom, Jenny, barged into her daughter's new place because she knew Taylor was there. She made the excuse she needed to borrow a blouse. But she really just wanted to meet her daughter's mysterious new boyfriend. She thought he was quote-unquote cute and a real nice kid, but now she had seen his face. Taylor had been trying to avoid any other witnesses, but now Jenny had seen him. So he knew his plan had to move even faster now he quickly convinced selena to open up a bank account the plan was for her to have an intermediary account and then he would murder her after he got the money into his own account just so evil to think about this like he does not care about selena whatsoever she's just a pawn in his game yet selena thinks they like actually have a real relationship together until then, he kept treating her like she was the most important person in his life. He kept taking her out on dates. And one night, he took her out to a reggae show with Don and Justin. And this was their first time meeting her. Don later said, quote, We prayed that God would send the right person, and that person would give up their life for a greater cause. Selena had no idea what they were planning behind her back. From her perspective, she was dating a man she really liked, and she finally had her own place to live in, and she had opened up her first bank account. Taylor later told her that he was soon going to inherit about $125,000 from a great uncle who had recently passed. To convince Selena that she had to use her bank account, he said he needed to hide it from his ex wife. It would only be in her account for a little bit, but he promised to pay her a $25,000 fee for helping him. He also promised he would take their relationship to the next level and
1: actually move in with her. And she just continued to fall for all of his lies. As the Children of Thunder prepared for these kidnappings, Taylor Ordered Justin to go buy a handgun in May of 2000. The sporting goods clerk would remember Justin specifically that day because he told the clerk that the Beretta 9mm he purchased was the exact same one he had used in the military. And we'll see this kind of time and again. They're trying to be discreet about all these things, but it's like, okay, now Selena's mom has seen uh, a tear, right? Yeah. And now you're talking up the sporting goods clerk so they're just gonna remember you. If you wanted to be discreet about it, you would go in, say nothing, buy the weapon and leave, but no, so now we got, we're building witnesses here, right? The next month Dawn purchased a reciprocating saw, a few replacement blades from Sears, plus nine duffel bags from Kmart. She then got two tasers off of eBay, and the next month she bought three pairs of gloves and three ski masks. Donna had also bought some gym weights so they could sink any human remains in the California Delta. So they're leaving a massive paper trail here. It's, these people are idiots, really. They also adopted three dogs they kept at the rental house. It was a Rottweiler, a Border Collie, and an Australian Shepherd. I love dogs and we'll see. Uh, most of these end up hopefully having a good life. Don built an outdoor dog kennel. Taylor's idea was that once they dismembered the bodies, they would then feed them to the dogs, which is so stupid like you can't they're not going to eat the bones right what are you going to do with the bones so they tried to feed these dogs animal bones just to test it out some meat with some animal bones and obviously you know it didn't work so they abandoned the border collie and the australian shepherd near bay point taylor ended up keeping the rottweiler for himself hoping because it was just this sick fantasy that he still wanted to watch a dog eat a part of a human even if they wouldn't consume the whole body. He was still just morbidly curious. Yeah, so weird. By now, Taylor was so deluded that basically if any idea crossed his mind and it pleased him, it must have come directly from God. Each day the group would hold a prayer session with the three of them. Taylor would bring up his next big idea and Justin and Dawn would just go along with it. He wrote up his 12 principles of magic on a scrap of paper and made Justin and Don memorize each of them. So for example, one of them said, quote, I am already perfect and therefore can do nothing wrong. And another one said, quote, I gain control by losing control. Makes a ton of sense. <laughs> what? I, these people are just in so deep you can tell here and it's like they're not yeah. even questioning him too it's full-on brainwashed right? yeah he's oh, yeah. programming him for sure they believed he was truly a holy prophet sent by god and they just obeyed all of his orders blindly he sometimes began his sentences with he would say spirit says something so if he had a divine revelation so for example one time he told justin and Don. Spirit says, if people aren't loyal to me, I'm just going to have to kill them. And he just constantly fed them these ideas that killing is acceptable as long as it's God's will. So, you know, Spirit says, oh, I heard a voice. Spirit says this, and I'm totally in the right, and you're not going to question me at all. Because this is very
0: in line with the teachings of Jesus, for sure. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, this is exactly what God would want. Yeah. Has he ever read the Bible, or I know, learned would, about the Ten Commandments? You
1: would or, think, like, I don't know, because literally uh, thou shalt not kill. Right, yeah. I mean, clearly at this point, he's completely rejected anything yeah. from like Mormon or, or Christian text.
0: Seems but, like the devil just entered his body at this point. Yeah, seriously. Just a
1: demon. Yeah. During another meeting, he told them about his latest idea. Here's another stupid idea. He called it Brazil. The plan was to adopt a few Brazilian orphans and train them as assassins. He would use them to kidnap the Mormon president of the church and force him to declare that Taylor was their new leader. And all of the old Mormon leaders would then be assassinated by the Brazilian orphans. Justin and Don would then be his new counselors, and then he would appoint 12 new apostles. So,
0: how high are
1: they at this point?
0: Ike. I've to come up with these ideas it's just like it started out with a little bit of like basis in reality like just a shred yeah but now it's just like full on i can just see just these drug-induced rants that he's going on he's but, on a different planet yeah at he's plane of existence yeah. yeah
1: like also why specify? i don't understand the specifying brazilian orphans like they specifically have to be brazilian well orphans. he always has this like shred of like logic in his crazy plans he's
0: like well they're orphans so nobody will care if they're gone or yeah yeah it's just like delusional yeah he's he's gone for sure since when did he become an assassin right like how's he going to teach these guys how to be assassins? how do you know how to do this yeah
1: that's a good point Ah, man it's idea after idea it will continue to disappoint you so, as they made all these stupid plans, a 40-year-old woman named Deborah McClanahan often visited their house on Saddlewood Court. And Deborah had met Dawn at a LDS meeting and then became friends with Taylor and Justin. Which is also interesting to note that Dawn is still going to LDS meetings. So, I wonder, like, how... How, how did much... they not stick out, like, a
0: sore thumb there? Yeah.
1: And, like... How are you still listening to what Justin is saying and Taylor is saying, and then still going to LDS meetings and like kind of pretending you're still in the church there? I don't know. But even Deborah, she described herself as a white witch, meaning she tried to use her witchcraft to help others. Supposedly, much like Dawn, Deborah was also still a practicing Mormon at the time, but later she left the church. Deborah would come over to the rental house and give them all massages. She believed massages could distribute spiritual energy and ground the cell. She would also finish the massages, often with a happy ending, for all three of the cult members if they asked for it. It didn't take long for Deborah to become Transform America's most trusted person, but she was never actually invited into the cult, she was just like a loyal outsider. That's why I, earlier I said there's like three and a half people in right, the cult. She's kind of half Yeah. So Taylor would occasionally tell her some of their less radical plans, but she really wasn't allowed to know about any of the murder extortion conspiracies that they were planning. Deborah even got to meet Justin and Taylor's mom, Karma, who was also a massage therapist at that time karma and jerry were still married but now they had an open relationship and apparently taylor once gave his mother and her boyfriend donald couples counseling sessions dear god yeah so we're in this is completely dysfunctional yeah the whole family is just yeah imagine being like hey let's open up our relationship okay cool and then now i have this boyfriend and instead of just finding someone else i'm gonna go to couples counseling with my boyfriend as i'm married to my husband and i'm gonna go to the counseling session with my son (laughs) what (laughs) this is so wacky man Ah, bizarre family bizarre family so as for taylor's little sister heather she was currently taking college courses in alaska far away from her family so she's like i'm getting the hell (laughs) away from this maybe she was the only like quote-unquote normal one in the family and she saw how wackadoo they were and she's like i'm getting the hell out of here i'm going to alaska <laughs> going as far
0: away as i possibly
1: yeah can. so deborah got to know the Helser family a little bit over that time and she later pitched taylor this idea to raise money for transform america now she didn't really know the whole idea but she knew that taylor needed to raise some money so she offered to act in pornographic films for him and her price was two thousand dollars per video so if you remember justin's new year new year's resolution right well yep. it was uh, become a sexual lover right so he saw this as an opportunity he offered hey it's like i'll be in i'll film it i'll be a part of this i might try to jump in but yeah <laughs> like but taylor declined their offer he even which this is strange he even scolded deborah and asked if that's quote what she wanted to be known for Which is pretty rich coming from a guy who was trafficking people, Literally, yeah. He then made her a counteroffer. If she wanted to help, she could keep a locked safe at her place for the Children of Thunder to use. He offered to buy her a new washing machine in exchange for the help, and she agreed. And then Taylor began storing all of his drugs at Deborah's place instead of their house. Meanwhile... The others noticed that Taylor was on edge more than usual, and he was using more meth. He was stressed out because their plans were about to be put into action, and then he kept making these last-minute revisions. So, one of these revisions was that their new targets would be elderly people, so they couldn't fight back. They would target them in quiet neighborhoods, preferably near highways, so they could easily get away, and he found his targets through his old job as a stockbroker. The plan was to use rohypnol to subdue the victims force them to sign the checks and then increase that dosage until they died if the rohypnol wasn't enough they plan on bringing the handgun tasers handcuffs leg irons and a blowtorch once they got them to sign the checks they would deposit the money into selena bishop's account and then over to taylor's account and Taylor promised he would take Selena on a really nice vacation out to Yosemite when all this was over and obviously unknown to her this was actually where he planned on killing her Taylor's first Target was a
0: man named Bob White he used to be the richest client that Taylor had back when he worked as a stockbroker plus Bob lived alone so on the morning of July 30th 2000 the three members of transform America woke up at a quick prayer session and then in the afternoon Dawn headed over to Deborah's place she handed her $100 and asked if she would go to the movies that night and buy four tickets to see X-Men. Then they headed to Denny's and ordered four meals. She told her to keep all the receipts so that they had a solid alibi. As far as Deborah knew, they needed the alibi for a drug operation they were doing. She had no idea what they actually had planned. Taylor then told Don to get a bottle of wine and cigars, and the plan was to pretend Taylor was still a stockbroker, and then knock on Bob's door and tell him that Taylor had just made another one of his neighbors super rich. So they just stopped by to celebrate. When they finally ended up going over to Bob's house, they knocked on the door, but no one answered. They didn't check to see if he was in town. As it turned out, he was actually in San Antonio, Texas, thank God, and he wouldn't be home for a while. So they ended up canceling the plan. Taylor then quickly moved on to their next victims, 85-year-old Ivan and 78-year-old Annette Steinman the couple had met during world war ii while ivan served in the coast guard in california they soon got married in 1945 and had been together ever since so just the storybook you know romance here yeah. whole life together their daughter judy described them as each half of a whole which is just ah, oh, it's heartbreaking what happens next but after retiring they had plenty of wealth and bought some timeshares in hawaii and lake tahoe A few years back, Taylor had worked for them as their financial advisor, and since they had a history, Taylor decided to reconnect with his old clients. They even planned a whitewater rafting trip together. The Steinman's other daughter, Nancy, later recalled how patient Taylor was with her father. The Steinman family had no idea what Taylor and the children of Thunder had been planning. On Sunday, July 30th, Ivan and Annette went out on a lunch date with friends for a few hours. When they got home, they planned on relaxing for the rest of the day. But that quickly changed at around 8pm that night. Taylor, Justin, and Don drove over to their house in a pickup truck. Don parked up the street out of eyesight and Taylor and Justin walked towards the Steinman's house. They wore black suits and carried briefcases with their weapons, handcuffs, and leg irons hidden inside. To a passing motorist, they almost looked like missionaries going door-to-door. But they had long hair and they were smoking cigarettes. The Steinman's neighbor across the street watched the men approach. He also thought they were missionaries, so... You know, he didn't want to be seen by them, so he backed away from the window. When Justin and Taylor got to the Steinman's front door, they rang the doorbell. Their daughter, Nancy, called them sometime after Taylor and Justin went inside the house. Her mother was short and didn't sound like she normally did. She told Nancy they had a company over and couldn't talk right now. She then hung up the phone. Outside, another neighbor named Risa had gone out on her porch to smoke, and she noticed a woman chain-smoking cigarettes nervously in her pickup truck. This woman was Dawn. When one of Risa's friends showed up, they considered taking a picture of the truck or even calling the police because it did seem suspicious. Moments later, a white van came rolling down the street. It was a Steinman's van that Taylor and Justin had just stolen. They pulled up next to Don's pickup truck. From the front yard, Risa and her friend could only hear part of the conversation, but this is what they heard. Don asked, did you get it? They couldn't hear the response, then Don said, I'm right behind you, and the van took off down the street. Unknown to Risa, the Steinmans had been bound and gagged in the back of the white van. Supposedly, Dawn then got out of the truck and approached Risa in her yard. She explained that her friends were just buying weed from a few houses down and she was their quote-unquote backup. Then she took off in the truck. Back at the rental house on Saddlewood Court, Taylor and Justin hauled Ivan and Annette into the house without anyone seeing. They then handcuffed them and forced them on the couch in the living room. Justin picked up the Beretta 9mm, aimed it at them, and sat on a chair across the living room. Taylor explained to them that he desperately needed money to flee the country. Once they signed the checks, he promised that he would leave them handcuffed to one of the beds, and a few days later he would call the police to come rescue them. Taylor then put a mattress in the living room and told the Simons to go to sleep. Justin stayed up all night armed with a handgun to make sure they wouldn't escape. In the morning, they agreed to sign the checks. One was for $33,000, and the other was $67,000. Meanwhile, Dawn went and got coffee for everyone, and when she got back, Ivan was even polite enough to thank his captor for the drink. Taylor then decided he would still dose the Simons with six tablets of Rohypnol. The whole point was that the drugs would subdue them and make them more compliant, but they had already agreed to sign the checks. Taylor just wanted to see what the drug would do to them at that point. It ended up making them extremely drowsy Taylor then tried to blow meth up Annette's nose to try and wake her up. Obviously, this didn't work very well. So it's kind of unclear, as is a lot of the details of this case, because a lot of different sources out there say kind of different things, different versions of events here. But the sources that we were looking at said that Don actually forged the signatures on the checks. But I also saw that they were able to get Ivan or Annette to sign these checks before they got too doped up on drugs. So now that Taylor had those signed checks, he no longer needed the Steinmans, so he dragged them both into the bathroom, and they were both barely conscious at this point. Then Taylor stripped down to his underwear and ordered Justin and Don to do the same. He claimed it was so that they wouldn't get any evidence on their clothes. He then put sheets of plastic beneath the Steinmans. Then Taylor and Justin both tried strangling them with their bare hands. A moment later, they noticed the Steinmans were still breathing, so Taylor and Justin just began bashing Ivan's head into the tile floor. Ivan most likely died, not from his head being bashed in, but from the heart attack he suffered as a result of the attack. Annette was still alive at this point um, after being bashed around, so Taylor took out a knife and stabbed Annette twice in the chest, and then he ultimately slit her throat. After this was over, Taylor then ordered Dawn to go down to the bank to deposit one of the checks into the intermediary account. If that one cleared with no issues, then she had to go ahead with depositing the rest. While she was doing that, the Helzer brothers tried cutting up the bodies with that reciprocating saw, but they realized it wasn't nearly strong enough to get through the tissue and bone, so they had to cut away the skin and muscle with knives before sawing through the bone. Then they divided the body parts into separate plastic bags and cleaned up the bathroom. Before Don headed down to the bank, Taylor had made Don dress up in a lime green pantsuit and a golden cowboy hat. He also made her use a wheelchair.
1: This is another moment of hey. Pure stupidity. Yeah, let's make sure everyone remembers us. Right. His idea was that the more ridiculous she looked, the
0: harder it'd be for the witnesses to identify her, which again, his Stupid. logic is completely flawed. Of course, this backfired. And I think too, he thought, you know, if we send in somebody that looks mobility challenged, you know, being in the wheelchair, that they're more apt to believe This woman's story or like who's gonna like give somebody in a wheelchair a hard time right yeah so that was kind of his reasoning for the wheelchair because the wheelchair is very random it's like okay why yeah but you know as somebody who's worked as a bank teller myself one of the first things they teach you when you become a bank teller is look out and report suspicious (laughs) activity and you can only i can only imagine don rolling in in the wheelchair with the cowboy hat on, lime green pantsuit, and then wanting to deposit this check from the Steinmans into somebody else completely unrelated to her, Selena Bishop's
1: bank account. Yeah, because they couldn't, for whatever reason, they couldn't get Selena to come and do it. They just got Dawn to come and do it instead. I wonder if Selena maybe backed out or something like that
0: so that right there as a bank teller or bank manager is a huge red flag i mean anytime a check came in that was you know ten thousand or more you definitely have to ask more questions and you know especially if the names don't match up like you're depositing this into somebody else's account like this is very weird right yeah and luckily uh the bank manager sniffed this out right away i mean it was very obvious that something weird was going on so the reasoning don gave you know the bank was that she needed to deposit the checks because the steinman's granddaughter selena bishop needed open heart surgery in san diego but she didn't have health insurance so the steinmans were going to cover the bill and that's when she handed over those two checks worth a hundred thousand dollars and don just claimed you know they're like well why are you doing this why isn't the steinman's coming and depositing this check there's a lot of money to just give
1: a friend yeah they didn't think this through at all
0: So the bank's manager, Vicky Sexton, she was not buying it whatsoever, and she called the phone number on the checks, which is actually what they do. They're supposed to do this and verify that they actually wrote these checks. And when she called the Simons, she got Ivan's answering machine. Don then told Vicky that the Simons just moved, but she had their new contact info. So Vicky called that number, and it took her to another answering machine. The voice claimed to be Ivan, but it was just Taylor doing a bad impression of an old man. Vicky then hung up and told Don that she would need the Steinman social security numbers to move ahead with the transaction. Don said she would go and get them. Then she left the bank. Vicky immediately put a hold on the checks. She'd be the only one who could clear them. So the money never went through because obviously she's going to verify that she's like, this is, there's no way light. this is fraudulent right. what's going on here. And a lot of banks have like, you know, they, they can call the other banks and talk to the actual, you know banker that works with the Steinmans and be like hey they did this you know does this sound right to you? Yeah, yeah. So they're putting the pieces together like something's very weird about this. On August 2nd Taylor took Selena out on one last date. They went to a bar in Berkeley and had a nice time like everything was normal. Then he told her that they were going to Yosemite for a nice vacation the next day. That evening they went back to the house in Saddlewood Court to quote unquote get ready for their vacation. A neighbor saw Selena going into the house and Sadly, this was the last time she was seen alive. That evening, Selena and the three children of Thunder were hanging out. Everyone was smoking weed except for Justin. Then Taylor secretly dosed Selena's wine with Rohypnol, but he didn't make sure it was dissolved enough, so when he handed her the glass, there was still powder floating on the top of her wine, so he went and got her a new one. This time, he made sure that it fully dissolved into the drink. Then he led her into the living room where he offered her a massage. She laid face down on a massage table, and Taylor got actually on top of her, straddling her, and that's when Justin came over with a hammer and swung down on her head. It wasn't hard enough to kill her, although it did crack her skull, but it was enough to knock her out. She cried out and raised her hands to defend herself, and the second blow snapped one of her fingers. Justin swung six times in total until she wasn't moving. Taylor then dragged her to the kitchen and left a trail of blood along the living room carpet. He ordered Dawn to clean up the blood and Taylor then dragged Selena into the bathroom to begin dismembering the body. But then Selena began moving and moaning in pain. Taylor then hit her three more times over the head and Justin and Taylor then rolled her into a rug to stop the blood from spreading and dragged her the rest of the way to the bathroom. Just before Taylor slit her throat with a knife, he said, Spirit says you get to know this isn't a dream. After she was dead, they dismembered her body with knives and the reciprocating saw. And Taylor took a bit of her skin around one of her tattoos and then fed it to his Rottweiler. The rest of her remains ended up in plastic bags like the Steinmans. After Selena's murder, Taylor worried about her mother, Jenny. He knew she had seen his face and he worried she would come poking around. Selena had also once lied to Taylor and told her that Jenny was a private investigator, which wasn't true, but Taylor became even more paranoid. He knew jenny was currently house-sitting selena's place because they were supposed to go to yosemite the next day so taylor quickly convinced the children of thunder that jenny also needed to die it is 2024 beginning of the year many of us are making those news resolutions or already have and trying to stick to them at this point we're all just trying to live a healthier happier life and one of the things that i've always struggled with personally is figuring out what types of vitamins and supplements and powders I should be using on a daily basis. Because if you've ever been to the vitamin cottage or the vitamin aisle, you know, at the grocery store, there's a million different
1: options there.
0: Care/of has made it extremely easy to figure out exactly what types of vitamin supplements you should be taking, and they're all backed by doctor's recommendations, which is super nice, and it's just a short, simple online quiz that asks you about your lifestyle your health goals and then it shoots out this doctor-backed recommendation and there's a lot of things on there that popped up for me that i wouldn't have thought about otherwise there's lots of adaptogens and other herbs and you know good stuff for your body that i had never even heard of before but when looking at the science behind it, i was like oh okay you know that might actually be good one that i'm a big fan of now is ashwagandha i mean it's great across the board for Sexual wellness for sure. I I swear by that. I'm like anybody having sexual wellness, you know, complaints out there, Ashwagandha every day. The cool thing about Care of that I like is that they take all of your vitamin supplements and they dose it out for you in these little compostable uh, packets, which are really convenient. So they send you your box, got your name on it. It's real real
1: cute. Put it up on your nightstand or whatever. Each packet has like a little saying on it that kind of makes you smile. It's like a Dr. Seuss quote or something like that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So you just
0: pull a packet, tear it open, and then there's your your daily dose of all your vitamins. I really like it for traveling. I think it makes it really easy, you know, just how many days you're going, grab, you know, five, six packets with you, and then you're set. You don't have to like sort out a pill organizer and do it all manually. So it's really a great convenience, and all the supplements are, are top-notch as well. But you can also buy the bottles if you're not ready to subscribe to the packets, which is great, so you can just try out some of the different vitamins and supplements they recommend. And overall, been really happy with this service. It just takes the thinking out of you know restocking that or going to the store to buy more. They just send it in the mail when you run out and you're good to go. So right now, you can get 50% off your first month subscription with Careof by just going to takecareof.com and enter code LIGHTSOUT50. Get 50% off your first month subscription with Careof, just go to takecareof.com and enter code LIGHTSOUT50.
1: At around 2.15 a.m. that night, Jenny and Jim Gamble had just returned to Selena's duplex after getting drunk at the bar. They went straight to bed on the first floor, and the rental's landlord who lived upstairs, her name was Le- Leora, and her husband Jay, they had actually heard them get home. Jim's snoring after he fell asleep was so loud, Leora had to actually move to her spare bedroom to get some sleep. So a little bit later, Taylor had snuck into the first floor of the house, and moments later, six gunshots rang out. Leora and Jay obviously woke up, startled by the noise. At first, Jay thought it was maybe just kids throwing firecrackers at the side of the house, but kind of when he shook off his sleep and came to, he was certain the noises were actually loud enough to be gunshots. Then outside, he heard tires screeching and a getaway car accelerating away from the house down the street. Luckily, at this point, a neighbor had already called the police because Jay and Leora did not call the police at this point. Instead, Jay raced downstairs with a flashlight, and when he tried to open the door to the first floor connected to the garage, which was the only way into that first floor, he noticed it was blocked by a man's limp arm. So he immediately ran back up the stairs and also called police. Here's some clips of those 911 calls.
0: We're in 911. What
1: is your emergency? Um, I'm in Woodacre, and I thought I just heard six shots on a gun go off. And then I thought I heard somebody come running down Redwood. We heard uh, someone get in a car. 911,
0: is this an emergency? Yes, an emergency. What's the problem? My tenant's mother and her boyfriend. Be... Okay, yeah, we it's have officers on the way out there.
1: A sheriff's deputy showed up to the house a few minutes later. Jim Gamble was found dead on the floor near the garage door. Jenny was found dead in the bed. Jenny had been shot twice in the head. Jim was shot four times. Once in the calf, twice in the chest, and once in the neck. He had lived for a few minutes after being shot, but Jenny had died instantly. There were no signs of forced entry or a robbery.
0: Yeah, the police quickly came to this conclusion because couples like wallets and jewelry and money everything was still there right it was very obvious that this was a targeted uh homicide here right here's actually a clip of detective steve nash uh recalling what the scene was like i observed uh a male lying on the floor next to a bed and i also observed a female lying in the bed with a lot of blood within the scene
1: in the detective search they found a note from selena it was addressed to a man named jordan which if you remember this is taylor's fake name and it said quote, i have everything i need right here i don't know when i've ever been happier in my life meanwhile taylor drove with dawn back to their place they were supposed to meet justin at the two bird cafe they had this other half-baked plan to break in find selena's co-workers addresses and possibly kill them but I guess Justin had fallen asleep back home, so he never met them there, so they called off the plan. The next day, Taylor made some phone calls, making himself even more suspicious here. One was to the Two Bird Cafe, another one was to a friend of Selena. He asked them where Selena was, trying to make himself just look stupid to the whole situation, but he ended up acting so strange during these phone calls, he ended up just drawing more attention to himself. So up until now, Taylor hadn't slept in several days. He barely ate. He was mostly surviving on coffee, weed, and meth. And in these past few days, the children of Thunder had murdered five people. The police were now aware of two of those murders. Investigators also noticed that Jenny looked a lot like her daughter, Selena. So they figured maybe Selena was the intended target since they had been killed inside her place. So the detective's first goal was to, hey, let's go find selena but after some searching they noticed she was missing so they went over to the two bird cafe where the employees and friends of selena told police about the strange phone call from selena's boyfriend who they only knew as jordan meanwhile taylor was back at the house extracting the teeth from his victims heads he wanted to make them harder to identify but he didn't necessarily want to extract the teeth himself so he kind of made don hold the heads and Justin extracted the teeth with a metal chisel and a hammer. And this is stupid because then they just placed the teeth inside plastic bags, and then those were also added to the duffel bags. All of the remains of the victims were then divided into these nine duffel bags. So Randomly, too. They try to, like, mix them up. Yeah, exactly. They used the gym weights and a few pavement stones outside to weigh down the bags. Then they went out to the California Delta— rented a three-person jet ski and took several trips back and forth from shore to deeper into the river and tried to scatter these duffel bags out across the riverways. Taylor then ordered Don and Justin to take the Steinman's van to a rough neighborhood in Oakland and leave the windows open, the radio on, and the keys in the ignition. They were obviously hoping it would be stolen with a few hours. Like, hey, free vehicle, come and take it. Then they took Selena's car up to Petaluma, about 50 miles northwest of Concord, and abandoned it. They also left Ivan Steinman's wedding ring in the car to try and confuse police, which doesn't make any sense, and if anything, you're just gonna make them connect more dots. back. It makes it easier. Yeah. On the way back to Concord, they stopped at Deborah's apartment to borrow her steam cleaner to try and clean up the blood in the house on Saddlewood Court. As you can imagine, this place was a disaster. A few days later, Dawn came over to Deborah's again and stored some drugs, a few of the victims' IDs, their jewelry, plus the murder weapons that were in the safe that was they kept specifically at Deborah's place. Then she warned Deborah that if police ever came around asking questions, just immediately dump the safe somewhere, get it out of the house. Meanwhile, Dawn spent more time over at Deborah's because she couldn't stand the smell of the blood and death at the house they had kept the bodies the dismembered bodies just in these duffel bags for days and so it it reeked you can imagine the smell of blood throughout the house she also became paranoid that it would be raided by police soon which is like the first smart intuition this entire group has ever had she even recorded a tv news report on jenny and jim's murder on deborah's vcr and back over at the house on Saddlewood Court, Justin struggled with getting the blood out of the carpet. So they ended up hiring professional cleaners. And when the professional cleaners came, they're, over, like, what they're the like, what is hell all is this? this? And they're like, oh, it's just a bunch of Kool-Aid stains. Yeah, right. Because okay. Kool-Aid is the color of blood. Yeah, right. Like a deep red. Get out of here. So just a bunch of blood. The cleaners didn't like, call the police. Like, what just Seriously, here? Like, you would think they would. I mean, they
0: bludgeon people to death yeah the amount of blood every like would you have a kool-aid explosion in here like there would just be like everywhere yeah
1: blood spatter and stuff like as far as i know as far as the blood in the living room it was it was selena's right because they had she was being massaged and
0: justin was hammering her head right but i'm like wouldn't there be blood spatter on the walls and the ceiling yeah there would have to be right oh Meanwhile, the Steinman's daughter, Nancy, began panicking. She hadn't been able to get a hold of her parents for days. So she went to their house on August 3rd, and newspapers were piled at the door. Moldy food sat on the kitchen, and she found her two cats trapped in the bathroom without food or water, and obviously she's like, something is very wrong here. She then contacted the Concord police and filed a missing person reports for Ivan and Annette. Not long after, police connected the dots between the missing Steinmans, Jim and Jenny's murders and Selena Bishop's disappearance. Detectives also discovered a pager at Selena's work, and phone records showed that the pager had been called by a number connected to Justin Helzer. They connected Justin to Jordan, who was Taylor because they knew Jordan lived in Concord, and the phone number had the Concord area code. Again, not very smart. But this wasn't all. DMV records show that Taylor drove a Saturn and Justin drove a white Nissan truck which had been seen at the Steinman's and Selena's place a few times by the landlords. They also discovered Justin had recently bought the bread and 9 millimeter, which would match the bullets at the murder crime scene of Jim and Jenny. Then on August 6th, police spotted the Steinman van in Oakland. The window was open. The radio was on and the keys were in the ignition, just like Justin and Donna had left it. It was never stolen. Like they assumed it would be. It's pretty awesome. Probably because even the criminals in that area were like, this is a setup you know yeah, what i mean this yeah. is a sting
1: operation absolutely like who does this? no one would leave Nobody's, a car like this right
0: yeah. officers called in the plates and confirmed that it was in fact the Stymans' vehicle they later found justin and don's fingerprints inside meanwhile detectives confirmed who this quote-unquote jordan guy was by showing pictures of the helzer brothers to selena's friends they also found a note in the Stymans' residence that was addressed to taylor helzer On the morning of August 7th, bright and early, a search warrant was obtained to search the house on Saddlewood Court. Detectives and a SWAT team showed up that morning. Justin and Don were detained in their bedrooms, and Taylor somehow jumped out of the window in his underwear and tried to make a run for it, but canine units caught him and dragged him to the ground. Inside the house, they found ecstasy, magic mushrooms, and drug paraphernalia. They were hoping to find a murder weapon, but the handgun and the knives had been stored over at Deborah's place. After Taylor was arrested, they brought him back to one of the squad cars and sat him in the front seat so one of the detectives could talk face-to-face with him. After 40 minutes, the detective lowered the squad car window so they could get some fresh air. As the detective was distracted by an incoming call from a sergeant, Taylor wormed his way through the half-open window and began sprinting down the street. He then broke into a neighbor's house looking for car keys. He came across a man named William Sharp sitting at his kitchen table drinking his morning coffee with his pet cockatoo. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> Taylor paced across the floor in front of the man. William later described Taylor as, quote, tall and, quote, screwy. Taylor then made his hand into the shape of a gun and pointed it at William. He threatened to kill him if he didn't hand over his car keys, and William told him he could have the keys, but none of his cars worked at the moment. Then William's two dogs, a border collie and a Malamute, came from across the house and chased Taylor outside and off the property. Good dogs. Yeah. He hopped the back fence and kept on running through the neighborhood, looking for some way to escape. A few blocks down, a neighbor named Mary was contacting Enterprise to get a car while hers was being worked on. Her son was upstairs sleeping, and Taylor barged into the house, grabbed a kitchen knife, and threatened to kill Mary if she didn't give him her car keys. Mary told him her car was in the shop and then showed him the yellow pages in front of her, pointing to Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Like, dude, I don't have yeah, one. Like, what, are you, what does it look like I'm doing here? So instead of getting the car that he demanded, Taylor then switched his request to some new clothes. Because again, he's running around in his underwear. After changing into Mary's husband's clothes, Taylor took scissors and cut off his ponytail, and then he ordered Mary to come with him. But Mary refused. Meanwhile, her son upstairs had actually dialed 911, and just as Taylor tried running from the property out of the back door, police caught up to him, and he was taken back to the police station. But back at the house on Saddlewood Court, investigators found faint bloodstains in the living room carpet, and fans were still running to dry the cleaning process also found a Rolodex with Taylor's old clients in it, a receipt for handcuffs, another receipt for leg irons, and rental info on a jet ski on the Sacramento River Delta. It's like
1: everything lines a up A The whole here. paper trail. You yeah. didn't even make sure to destroy all of that. Also, if you guys don't know what a Rolodex is, because I think those are no longer used oh, anymore. Oh yeah, my parents had one of those. Yeah, so like growing up, we've had it, but uh, that's kind of aging us here. But if you don't know what a Rolodex is, it's basically, all your contacts and all their information and their phone numbers and stuff and you can roll through it and they would kind of flip. And it was usually alphabetized.
0: Ours wasn't. Ours was a mess. <laughs> we had like <laughs> some of them like ripped off that were just like jammed in there. And nice. Could, like, yeah, God, Rolodex is now it's just like your contacts on your phone. Yep. The other thing that investigators notice uh, upon entering Saddleback Court is like the house was a mess. living room was a mess. They could see the blood stains left over from them attempting to clean it i'm sure there was other signs of, of blood in the house but they noticed that the bathroom was like the only pristine room in the house and it was very apparent to them that it had been like remodeled or they attempted to like make it look new again and ripped out a bunch of stuff in there
1: because that's where they did all of the dismembering so right you can only imagine how disgusting that got because you might think oh it's tile it'll we could Tile just stain easily stains, wash though. this off. Yeah, and if you think about grout in between the tiles, that's the gonna bathtub? stain too. Yeah, yeah. Like all that stuff is gonna stain with enough blood. So yeah, they ended up demoing it, the whole thing, and and replacing it, which somehow, is somehow. Uh, yeah. In the midst of all this other stuff going on. In Taylor's room, they found quotes
0: from the Book of Mormon and other religious books next to pornographic magazines. Those two obviously go to go together. Uh, makes sense. He also had made a bunch of strange flowcharts and ideas for various plans he'd come up with over the past several months. Some were plans on how he would come up with alibis or how he'd explain the murders as self-defense. My God, he's just anything he can think of. He's putting it down here. Yeah, they were often written poorly, though, and sometimes one word at a time would read: "Call Vicky, Mexico and taxi, wake up at 5:30 a.m., date rape drug, head and teeth, two hours." They also found notes about the Steinmans. Soon enough, Deborah realized what had been going on, and she came forward and told the police everything that she knew. On the day the children of Thunder were all arrested, a man riding a jet ski in McCollamy River in Sacramento County spotted a duffel bag floating in the water, and obviously you're gonna go like check it out. But this poor guy's not knowing what he's about to uncover yeah, here.
1: I would think it'd be like oh, money, it's like a something. bag of a bunch of cash yeah. or something.
0: Yeah, I think most of. I mean. I guess if you're familiar with true crime you might you might think there's something in there true worse than that but this unsuspecting guy he goes and pulls the bag out of the water opens it up to find body parts of an older male older female and a younger female inside which can't imagine what that must have been like but over the next few days all those nine duffel bags that they tried to drop to the bottom of the river all surfaced and were recovered with all the victim's body parts still inside a few of the bags are so poorly weighed down that they just never sunk. They just floated yeah. the entire time. So it was floating down the river. And the body parts were later identified through DNA
1: analysis. So the members of the Children of Thunder were charged with 18 various felonies. This included murder, extortion, and kidnapping. And all of them potentially faced the death penalty. Deborah, their friend and self-proclaimed witch, would be a key witness against them in court, and she would confess that she made up an alibi for the murders. If you remember, she had to buy the X-Men tickets and the Denny's meals and stuff like that. During the preliminary hearings in December 2001, the prosecution proved they had more than enough evidence to go to trial. I mean, they were idiots. They didn't cover their tracks at all. These are some of the dumbest criminals I think we've ever covered here on Lights Out in my opinion at least. At first the cult members were all loyal to each other. You know, it's for the cause, it's for Impact America, but Dawn would later take a deal where she would testify against the Helsher brothers if she wouldn't get the death penalty. Her statements filled in all the gaps with the Children of Thunder case and her testimony matched all the evidence they had collected. Here's how Dawn recalls how she felt after the murders how
0: were you feeling at that time very spiritual very very at peace because I felt like I was doing what God wanted me to do I felt like I was following the spirit even if that meant that people were going to die innocent people were going to die even if that meant people were going to die
1: she also later apologized to the victim's families she said quote I'm sorry I know these words are totally inadequate. As inadequate as they are, they are the best to describe how I feel. If I could go back and change things, I would without a second's hesitation, but I can't. Dawn Godman was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 37 years. She is currently serving her sentence at the Central California Women's Facility, located in Chowchilla, California. Now, as for Taylor, his trial was about to start. They were in the jury selection process when he suddenly decided to plead guilty in March 2014. Justin was the only one of the three of them to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, so he would go to trial. His defense argued that he was mentally ill and blindly followed his older brother. They told the jury that Justin truly believed his brother was a prophet of God. Justin was later found guilty of 11 counts during this trial, which included murder, extortion, and kidnapping. So
0: that didn't really uh, pan out for
1: him? No, not a good call. Friends and family members of the Halzer brothers wept in court, and some of them even testified, told the jury how mental illness had run in the family quite a bit. Several other aunts and cousins had been interned in psychiatric wards, and this family was heartbroken, obviously. Something like this would happen. As they all cried, I thought this was was, uh, compassionate. As the Helzer family and friends cried, some of the victims' family members were actually seen passing the Helzer family facial tissues to wipe their tears, which is, that's a powerful gesture.
0: Here's a clip, actually, of uh, Karma Helzer showing support for her sons.
1: Call upon the powers of heaven and earth to bring forth the impeccable truth.
0: Just before his penalty phase began, Justin had an outburst saying, quote, I want this life to be over. I want to die. The judge ordered jurors to disregard his statements and they were escorted from the room. In the end, on August 4, 2004, Justin was sentenced to death in addition to life without parole. In 2010, he attempted suicide by stabbing himself in the eye with a Bic pen. He survived but was blinded and suffered brain damage. I believe he was like paralyzed after this. It's just awesome brutal in June 2012 journalist Nancy Mullaney became the first reporter in a decade allowed inside of California San Quentin State Prison death row and this is where she got an opportunity to interview Justin she gave details of her interview via reddit AMA post and she noted how quiet the cell block was and how most of the prisoners had accepted their fates if you're not familiar with uh, San Quentin I mean that's a, one of the worst prisons Huge Uh, the face of the planet's massive yeah and on death row prisoners are locked in their cells 23 to 24 hours a day for the rest of their lives and there's actually a picture outside of justin's cell here you can actually see him Uh, if you look real closely it is a tiny tiny little cage basically according to nancy unlike every other prisoner she interviewed while she was there justin actually admitted his guilt to her he said the murders felt like something that happened in another life in his interview with her Justin said, quote, "I apologize. It was erroneous. It was so misdirected. I'm so sorry. It's like a past life. I'm so not that person anymore. So I don't have a problem admitting what I did." Justin also said he was tired of Death Row when he made the suicide attempt, and which again left him totally blind and partially paralyzed. He claimed he had severe medical problems but was only permitted to see a doctor every 2 to 3 months because the inmates have to follow a rotating schedule. Instead, he said he saw nurses who refused to bring him to a doctor unless he was visibly sick. He also said the conditions on death row are such that it can lead one to attempt to commit suicide. They're not good here. He stated his opposition to the death penalty, which he considered unnecessary because it didn't deter crime and inefficient because taxpayer dollars are spent keeping inmates alive on death row for many years. He said, when people do commit crimes, they are not thinking, oh my gosh, I might get the death penalty, I better not do this. They're in the moment, and they want what they want. They are short-sighted. They don't foresee the consequences of their actions because they're impulsive. Those few who do stop and think about the legal ramifications often think they are smart enough not to get caught. Which is, uh, wow. Yeah, I mean. Quite the revelation.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, I do agree with him here, even though he's a piece of garbage. Uh, those are, sounds like he did a lot of research into the, Yeah. You know I mean, he had nothing else to do, right, while he sat there, so. But the following year, on April 14,
0: 2013, at 41 years old, Justin hung himself in a cell by attaching a sheet to his single cell bars. A San Quentin corrections officer found Justin deceased around 10.17 p.m. during a routine security check. As for Taylor, on December 15, 2004, he was given five death sentences. Jenny Valerian's sister, Olga, later told reporters, quote, Taylor is the second coming of Manson, not Christ. Judy, the Steinman's daughter, said, It sickens me to know that the last faces my parents saw were evil. Jurors and the judge were seen hugging the victim's family members after the trials. I actually have a clip of Selena's Aunt Olga's impact statement we'll play now. There's no closure.
1: When you walk out of the store and you get a glimpse of your niece, and you have to look back again and you realize it was just a sight. It wasn't her, you know? Oh, you see your sister at every turn, but your sister's not there.
0: Taylor Helzer is currently 53 years old. He's on death row at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego. His latest appeal claimed police violated his Fourth Amendment rights by seizing items not listed on their search warrant when investigating his home. It was rejected very recently here on January 22nd, 2024. And at the time of this recording, he still remains on death row with no execution date set. So there you
1: have it. The, yeah, that's a heavy one. Yeah. And that story is is wild. I'm surprised it's not uh more mainstream. Um it seems like a, a pretty high profile case, especially in California. But man, these were in my opinion, some of the dumbest criminals I think I've researched. Uh, paper trails, witnesses, uh blatantly drawing attention to themselves at every single beat of this case um some of the stupidest idiots um and yeah it's just all around a a sad circumstance for what Uh, yeah and that's i think that's the worst part is that they're so stupid yet they did so much damage yeah they they took people's loved ones family members for
0: literally no reason yeah i mean they it seemed like they had no solid plan it was just kind of like on the fly i mean especially when we find out he has all these ideas written down and he's just i mean i just see him messed out yeah just constantly like obsessing over this idea that he has of transform america and these grandeur visions he's having and it's just i i think the drugs really played a huge part in this Ending up where it did. Yeah. And going to the extreme that it did.
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, who knows? Like, it could have, he could have just started his weird little counseling program and like maybe a semi successful self help program if you really wanted to do that. But yeah. charge money for it. Yeah. And I think also mental illness is at play here, you know, hearing those voices as early as 14. Uh, that has to play into it. Right. Ultimately, in
0: my, my opinion, I feel they got the punishment they deserved. I think, you know, obviously there's a lot of controversy around death penalty and, you know, whether that should be a a legal thing or not. But in my opinion, I feel I was adequate adequate for the crimes committed here. And I think, you know, the the victim's families probably felt somewhat relieved knowing that they're
1: ultimately, you know,
0: never going to see the light of day
1: again. How do you feel about Don getting off with the the plea? I mean, she's not she didn't really get away with anything because she's gone to prison. But she will be eligible for parole eventually. She'll yeah. be really old. But.
0: I'm glad they held her accountable, you know, for what for what her part in this. I do feel it shouldn't be, you know, I don't think she should be punished to necessarily the level that the brothers were, because she did play a part in it, but I do think Taylor was the ringleader here for sure. Taylor definitely manipulated both of them and you know, I think her punishment's fair as well. Yeah. I mean, do, she, do I
1: hope she gets out on parole? No, but I doubt she will. I'd I mean, highly doubt she will. these are pretty horrific too. crimes, but yeah, I mean, I'm glad the play deal was just that because there are some cases where if they didn't have the evidence here, who knows? I mean, there are some cases where those plea deals get really nice for the criminals and uh but thankfully they left a massive paper trail yeah. and all the evidence was there. They really just needed Dawn to fill in the gaps of uh the murders specifically. So Yeah.
0: They had everything they needed. This was a I mean, a hard case to mess up if you're the police. Yeah. I mean, um, they they had everything they needed to
1: put these guys away for good. I do the, the appeal system is it's so frustrating because it's like he's trying to like in his latest one that was rejected it was like you could just keep appealing it's like hey yeah. they violated my fourth amendment right because they technically uh, uh seized these items which weren't necessarily a part of the warrant and you're like oh man they're really trying to find these small loopholes in the law i mean luckily it was rejected but it's it's scary that there are even these loopholes that they can even chase after while Absolutely. they're on death row. And yeah, like, like his brother was saying, it's like, you're just wasting taxpayer money going through all these appeals constantly.
0: Yeah. The way that the death sentence actually works is not optimized for, you know, saving taxpayer money for sure. Yeah. I mean, it could be, if you're going to do it, do it a different, do it a different way where it isn't, drawn out for so long but then on the other side it's like does that person deserve the the right to appeal and you know so right. it's like you, it's a double-edged sword it's yeah. definitely a double-edged sword but i think he's just going to keep trying to appeal and you know get off a of death row i mean we see it all the time and you know chowchilla was mentioned in this Don's over in chowchilla and on mile higher we just covered the chowchilla kidnapping have you heard of that no. story? oh crazy yeah 26 children their bus driver were kidnapped by three, three men. Holy crap. And buried alive underground.
1: Whoa.
0: Yeah. It's luckily a story that ends somewhat positive because everybody survives and they escape. Really? Yeah. They're buried alive. Yeah. They, they trapped them in a, uh, like a moving van. Holy shit. Underground that they had buried in this like rock quarry. Wow. All Right. Yeah. Not to spoil, no spoil, sorry for the spoiler alert there, but, (laughs) um, there's a great film on uh, HBO on the Chilla case. Okay, Really interesting, really. I'll
1: have to check that
0: out. But uh, the perpetrators in that case, they got life sentences um, and they appealed like 17 times. Yeah. Uh, or this was not appeals rather, this was uh, parole hearings. Oh, so they, okay. They, they had 17 parole hearings and they eventually all got out. Wow. And paroled out. And this was in California as well.
1: How how long are we talking? Do you remember years. how many years? years? Yeah,
0: they were in prison time. a long, long time. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's tough because it's like it, always case by case, person by person. What do they do? What's the gravity of their crimes? How do we sentence them? When should they be up for parole? Should we put them to death? You know, and it's, it's also state by state. Yeah, there's so many factors that go into these sentences.
0: Feel like the
1: criminal justice system
0: needs a facelift needs a needs to be reformed and updated and you know it just seems like it's still so antiquated in so many different ways and we're not utilizing technologies the way that we should be and there should be ways to expedite this obviously the whole prison system needs a revamp as well i mean it's just endless the problems yeah that countless. You, you discover
1: fun little tidbit fact that i learned cuz i was I had jury duty, which we don't have to get into, but I did learn something fascinating about the judge is that I think he was saying in Oregon, they don't call it guilty, not guilty. They call the verdicts proven or unproven. Oh, I did I not like, know that. Oh. That actually clarifies things quite a bit because yeah, someone could be guilty yet unproven or vice versa, right? And it also takes the onus off of the jurors feeling like they're casting judgment on these people, like you're guilty. No, it's more like we've accepted that the prosecution has proven that this person has committed these crimes. Wow, and I that, think small, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, and I think small things like that could really rewire the justice system, like that. Even just changing language, yeah, guilty versus not guilty. Yeah, it makes way more sense to be
0: proven unproven because right. that's what you're doing. It's
1: literally the process of the, the court. Prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Exactly. So I thought I like that it. was cool. Yeah, I learned a ton. I'm glad yesterday.
0: with your day off at the jury duty that you yeah, learned something. It wasn't so. a day off. <laughs> trust me,
1: it's the hardest I've worked in a long time. My brain was uh, was fried at the end of the day. But but
0: we're gonna go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Let us know your thoughts uh, in the comments below if you're listening out there and Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Let us know on social media at Lights Out Cast. But. If you enjoy the show, we'd love for you to go and follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple podcasts or better yet do both of those. And then come see us over on YouTube and subscribe to us on YouTube. We'd really appreciate it. it. Does help us out. Reviews also are great. We love reading reviews from you guys. We were just reading through some reviews uh,
1: that were left last week. Yeah. And they were good. I they always love awesome. going through them. Yeah. yeah super positive. Good Everyone's... or bad. Yeah. You, hey, you can, you can call me out on my BS if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, please do, no I. <laughs> but we will see
0: you guys next week. till then, lights out, everybody.